Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. SCP-001, Past and Future, Part 2. The world is on the brink of collapse as the SCP Foundation struggles to deal with a hostile entity or group of entities that are capable of altering the properties of anomalies for the purpose of making humanity suffer. Things that were once relatively safe are now loose in the wild and dangerous, and things that were once dangerous are now far more so. Normalcy is a bygone dream at this point, and the Foundation's O5 Council nearly voted to give everyone in the world cyanide pills so that they could go quickly rather than continue to suffer. One of them, however, O5-2, secretly visited a number of anomalies capable of viewing the future, and saw that at least some part of humanity managed to flee to another planet where they create a utopian society. She has no idea how this will be possible or when, but she's working to keep humanity around as long as possible to see it happen. With all that in mind, let's continue the story. It seems that O5-2 decided to tell the rest of the Council what she had done, and the fact that she believes that humanity will find refuge on another planet. It's just up to them to get there. The Council, of course, had already considered fleeing the planet when this whole thing first started, but ruled it out as being technologically impossible. Now it seems, though, that perhaps they're reconsidering it. O5-7 receives an email from the head of Project Heimdall, a Foundation project designed to research potential means by which extraterrestrials might attempt to conquer Earth, and develop countermeasures for these situations. Part of this project involves utilizing deep space probes developed by the Foundation utilizing various anomalies to facilitate faster-than-light travel and long-range communication and control. In the email, the director says that they've received the latest data from one of their probes and have found two possible planets that could theoretically support human life. They've also found no signs of any extraterrestrial life, which he finds surprising, but figures that the longer they go without contact, the better. He believes that this info lends further credence to the human survival hypothesis. O5-7 responds, and says that it's starting to look like O5-2 is right, after all. He tells him to remember to be on the lookout for a couple things, one being that they believe SCP-001 to reside somewhere out in physical space not in some alternate reality or dimension. The other thing is the message that the Foundation received from this entity or group of entities back in 1954. When the 001 file mentioned it, it was heavily classified, but 057 is going to share its contents. He says that they are very familiar with the Foundation, enough to know that 057 himself was a movie buff, They also gave him directions to a place in the desert that he could drive to in a few hours, so they knew where he lived as well. 
057 drove out to the spot with a team and found a movie theater in a washed out gully in the middle of nowhere. More than that, it was the movie theater he had gone to as a child. He left the team outside and went in. He says that it was cold inside, air-conditioned, and as he sat down, the lights dimmed and a movie started to play. The movie's title was Planet of Hands, but it was unlike any movie he'd ever seen, more of a disjointed series of images. He recognized a number of the pieces of footage, things like military footage and aftermaths of bombing campaigns. Some of the things he saw he didn't even realize there was footage of, And aside from the war footage, there were scenes of mass starvations, volcanic eruptions, and other massacres. Then the movie shifted into still shots of foundation buildings and facilities, which 057 took as a pretty clear message for them. In the next instant, though, he was no longer in the theater. He was still in his seat, but everything around him had changed and become far more vibrant and oversaturated. People, objects, and places were swirling around him, all depicting unspeakable acts from throughout thousands of years of human history. None of the things he saw stayed still for more than a few seconds, except for a scene of a man in a resplendent robe impaling different people onto a sharpened stake and acting like it was the most natural thing in the world. 057 can't say how long this vision went on for, but at some point he covered his eyes and waited for it to stop. When he finally looked back up, the theater was back and was still playing the film. He saw himself on the screen, looking obscenely happy, happier than he's ever been in his life. He says that this image has stayed with him more than anything else he saw. In the film, he saw himself board something akin to a giant wooden ark, suggesting that it was purely symbolic. He saw other people board the ark with him, people from all different walks of life, and when they were all aboard, the ark lifted into space and sailed through the cosmos, with the Buck Rogers music playing in the background. The ark eventually arrived at a planet that looked a lot like Earth, at the center of a system of moons. As it approached one of the moons, he saw that this clearly wasn't like Earth, possessing a darkened nightscape illuminated by fires across the land, with only soot, smoke, fire, and rusted scraps of metal twisted into man-sized shapes visible. The music swelled as they all stepped off the Ark onto the moon, with all of them looking ecstatic with joy. The movie faded out with Russian text, which seems to have been butchered a little, but the Foundation believes that they intended to mean, come home instead. It seems that 001 knew even back then that they might eventually try to flee Earth to go to another Earth-like planet, but they're telling us to come home instead. This is similar to what SCP-411 told 052 when he said that, unlike him, she'll be home soon. The plot thickens. The next document concerns SCP-990, so let me briefly explain it. 990 is a human male that appears to Foundation personnel through dreams, and exclusively through dreams, with the Foundation yet to find him in the real world. They have also yet to find any evidence of him appearing to non-Foundation personnel. In these dreams, SCP-990 typically informs the Foundation personnel of some sort of 
impending incident or disaster, after which the Foundation can then act to prevent them. The Foundation isn't sure if this entity is causing these incidents or merely warning about them, but the fact that he has knowledge of the future makes him potentially very useful. A doctor has a dream in the midst of this whole debacle in which they are visited by SCP-990. The man tells them that he is going to show them some things, and the doctor is apprehensive, wondering what sort of burned out ruins they'll be shown. They panic, just wanting to wake up and get away from this dream, but cannot. 990 shakes his head at the doctor and says that he's going to guide them, but he needs something first, and points to the doctor's left hand. The doctor figures that this is just a dream and holds out their hand. 990 nods and pulls out a sharp object from their coat, more akin to a blade from a lawnmower than a knife, and slices through the doctor's wrist. The doctor feels the pain from the injury, but no blood is visible and the hand doesn't fall off. 990 looks at them sympathetically and says that they can move their hand, it's fine, but now they're out of reach of 001 and they can talk. The doctor's hand is numb, but they can move it, and the feeling of panic from earlier is gone. 990 looks at them, and he now seems to be wearing the doctor's face, with the doctor feeling that they are someone else now. 990 says that he can give three revelations before 001 finds him again. Suddenly, they're outside at night, with nine different moons in the sky, and the doctor is now in a child's body. 990 holds up one finger and says, You are not in your proper place, although he ignores the doctor's questions about whether he means them personally, or the Foundation, or mankind in general. 990 holds up a second figure and says that 052 is absolutely correct, but also disastrously wrong. A third finger, and 990 leans in close, saying that this is the trickiest one. 990 asks the doctor to commit this one to memory above all others. He says that the primary mover behind what you know as SCP-001, above all other things, is love. The doctor then woke up at their workstation. Well, a few very interesting things from that dream. There is definitely an odd connection with Hands, which just brings more questions about what exactly the planet of Hands is. 052 is correct, but also incorrect, and somebody is not in their proper place, although we can surmise that this likely refers to humanity, if the message of come home is to be believed. As for 001 being motivated primarily by love, that's definitely an eyebrow raiser considering how much terribleness they're causing on Earth. The next file is related to SCP-2272, a phenomenon affecting a minor league baseball team in Florida, in which a player appears during games that doesn't actually exist. All attendees of these games share a visual hallucination of a figure known as Ellis Canastota playing in the game which also affects recordings and statistics of the games. The Foundation once tried to contain the entity by transferring him to a Foundation-controlled baseball team, but the appointed manager was found comatose in his bed after suffering from apparent blunt force trauma, 
and Foundation staffers within 40 kilometers reported experiencing the same dream, in which Ellis was throwing a fastball at the head of the tied-up manager. The document informs us that on November 7th at 4.30 a.m., the Major League Baseball organization announced that Ellis Canastota had been assigned to the Cincinnati Reds franchise. All available personnel were mobilized in response, including the entirety of local MTF 352 Dalit. A man is lying in his bed as this happens, staring at his alarm clock as his phone continues to buzz with messages from the Foundation. Much like the Broken Masquerade, the Foundation was disseminating a lot of classified info to the majority of personnel to keep them better informed about what exactly was happening. The man was not exactly pleased about that, as he preferred to be blissfully unaware of things like the council considering distributing cyanide pills to everyone. At 4.30am, he receives a phone call from regional director Kate McTierris, who informs him of the MLB announcement and gives him a list of instructions. The man, Agent Allred Smith, seems to be a member of the local MTF in charge of SCP-2272, probably a higher-ranking agent if he's receiving a call from the director herself. Allred Smith gets dressed as he continues to talk, and McTierris tells him that if things go awry with recontaining 2272, they shouldn't hesitate to decommission it, meaning terminate it. This, of course, isn't the normal procedure for the Foundation, but 001 has changed a lot of things. At 5.21am, the MLB posted a notice online that at noon a game would be played between the Cincinnati Reds and the St. Louis Cardinals in Cincinnati. Ellis Canastota is listed as the starting pitcher for the Reds. Agent Allred Smith is cruising towards Cincinnati in a mobile command center along with several other personnel. A doctor complains about the fact that they're playing a game today when the World Series just ended and the fact that they managed to sell over 17,000 tickets for the game before the Foundation shut it down. Perhaps in another time, the Foundation would be able to shut down the entire game and contain the situation that way, but as understaffed and overworked as they are, the best they can do is monitor it and hope nothing goes wrong. The MTF is assigned to replace the security personnel at the stadium, as well as the concession staff. The MTF arrives at the stadium at 11.47 and managed to replace 78% of the stadium personnel before opening the doors to spectators. There is a hiccup as the game is about to start, however, since none of the players on either team were even made aware of the game. It seems that Ellis Canastota is listed as starting at every position for both teams. As the game begins, every player that walks onto the field has the exact same appearance, each wearing an identical uniform with the name Canastota embroidered on it. Aerial surveillance equipment shows that no one is actually on the field except for the umpires. The doctor immediately assigns the team's narrative officers to put out disinformation and social media posts, marking this as a publicity stunt. All of the concession vendors have been stocked up with Class C amnestics to wipe people's memories when an order is given, and the stadium is being monitored by an AI to screen for any anomalous communications. Agent Allred Smith is sent into the stadium seating with a long black case, 
to be opened upon the doctor's signal. Thanks to the MTF's efforts, the spectators at the stadium were under the impression that they were watching a non-anomalous baseball game until 2.52pm, during the middle of the game's seventh inning. At that time, an individual walked onto the field that matched all biometric data for a player that had died in 2012. The player was given a microphone, presumably for the traditional singing of Take Me Out to the Ball Game, and spectators were heard to be audibly uncomfortable as the player's identity became apparent. Allred Smith recognized the player as well, and asked the doctor in his earpiece if he has authorization. The doctor yells at him that he does not until she says he does, as since his equipment is set up, he'll only need a few seconds to react when she gives the word. The deceased player begins speaking, saying that, much as it is in this place, in their perfect society, sport is a sacred pastime. He goes on to say that they'll understand more after they have truly spoken, and this is a fine place for them to speak plainly. The crowd is silent and perfectly still during this. The player mentions a story that they've heard of a man asking his friend that has returned from the grave if there is baseball in heaven. He says, referring to the audience as his brothers and sisters, that there is baseball in heaven, and then laughs in a high-pitched, screeching tone. He then says that today, they can all see together, that there is baseball in hell as well. The house organ begins to play as he stops speaking and raises his cap as he fades away. Communications onto social media and personal messages from audience members increase dramatically after the event, necessitating elevated containment protocols. At 2.59pm, the doctor authorized both the mass deployment of amnestics and the decommissioning of SCP-2272. A small prop plane swooped down close to the stadium and distributed a cloud of smoke containing the amnestics, while Allred Smith put on his gas mask and lined up his shot. The equipment he was using wasn't a gun, but rather a complicated camera linked to a satellite. It seems that the decommissioning required SCP-2272 to be both observed and unobserved at the same time, which will render it unstable although Allred Smith really has no idea how it works. He activates the equipment as the cloud of red smoke descends onto him. As the view clears, he looks back onto the field to find it empty, except for four dumbstruck umpires. He then looked at the camera equipment at the photo he took, which did not show the playing field of the stadium, but rather a black and white team photo of 25 identical men. The photo was clearly taken at night, with nine moons visible in the sky, and a sign propped up in front of the team reading, The Past, The Future. All of the men were holding out their arms in front of them, and they were all missing their hands. 001 seems to be making it explicitly clear that they don't want us on Earth, referring to it as hell, but rather they want us to come home presumably to the planet of hands. This seems to be, as the sign and the title claim, both humanity's past and its future. One could infer then that they're exacerbating our anomaly problem and making us suffer so that we want to leave Earth and go somewhere else, 
which seems to be exactly what the Foundation is now planning. If SCP-990 is right, then they're not doing this to make us suffer, but out of love. Speaking of SCP-990, we have another dream report in which he makes an appearance, this time submitted by none other than 052. This is apparently the first time 990 has ever appeared to an overseer. She dictated the dream to her personal assistant after waking up, and is clearly distressed about what she saw. She says that in 1978, she had a child, which is highly discouraged among overseers, but she wanted a bit of the future in her life, something that would go on. Her son's name was Gabriel, and when he was three, he died of a wasting illness that the best Foundation doctors could not treat. She goes on to say that Gabriel came to her last night, not like a normal dream about a dead relative, but he was there in her dream. He brought her to a hill, atop which was SCP-990, crucified and beaten, with both his hands missing. Gabriel looked up at her, smiling, and she says that you think you'll break down in a moment like that, weeping with the joy, but when her dead son looked up at her, all she felt was terror. The terror was so great that she felt her heart would stop, and she's never felt anything so wrong as that. Then Gabriel spoke, with a man's voice, a voice like she imagined that he would have had if he had grown up. These sorts of things were such small flights of fancy, and this thing was putting them on display. She says that SCP-001 is definitely hunting them, and Gabriel said that he missed her, making her feel like she had been shot in the chest, and all her grief was being wrung out against her will. Gabriel continued to speak, and it was clear that this was 001 speaking through him, with 990 softly repeating whatever it said while hanging from the cross. The entity said that humanity is tempted to think of them as our fathers or gods, but really they are our children. Not actually as they came before us, but they love us like a child loves its parent. It says that 052 knows of what they speak of as she has seen the utopian city that is really the past and present, the city of these entities. It says that this world is everything that humanity is capable of, and they live their days in paradise. Suffering and dying so that your children will see better days is what every parent should strive for, so that maybe they won't have to die like you will. These entities do not hurt or suffer because 052 and others like her have brought them here, making them the perfect children of the perfect parents. It goes on to say that every child thinks that they are glad that they will live to bury their parents, that they suffered on their behalf. For many, many years, these entities felt shame at these thoughts, but in their latest stages of perfection, they now understand that this is the natural order of things. 052 says that the most horrifying experience of her life was being raped by a stranger in an alley, until she had her dead son explain our proper place in the cosmos. The entity went on, saying that parents sacrifice for their children, that's as it should be, 
and many, many years ago, humanity left this perfect world. The entities didn't figure out how until several centuries later, but we somehow managed to transmit ourselves far beyond their reach. The entity says that our science is woefully inadequate, since our knowledge was stolen from them, and so they whittled it down until we became convinced that we merely evolved from this planet spontaneously. We fled that planet on purpose, so making us forget the reason why was an important step in convincing us to come home later on. It says that our society, even so far removed from their utopia, is on the path to becoming just like it, thanks to how much we stab each other in the back. A system can be made perfect and free of corruption, but it must be done with the knowledge of suffering and the knowledge that others are suffering on our behalf. The entities don't know why that is, it just is. It says that we left the planet of hands many thousands of years ago, and it has sat empty since then as a gap in their perfection, waiting for the joyous return of their prodigal mothers and fathers. The entities have limits, though, which is why they can't simply come here directly and take us back. If they could, the entity says that they would take us all in their homes and have glorious feasts in our honor. They cannot embrace us, but they do love us, and they will show us how much they love us from across impossible distances. It says that it promises that we will come back home of our own free will, and they will not need to show us how, as the knowledge already rests within us. They will also not need to explain why, as we have seen the terrors that lurk beyond their protection. We will all be so much happier soon, and tomorrow will be the greatest expression of their love ever conducted. O52 woke up screaming afterwards, and she tells her assistant to tell O53 that she is sorry. Oof, that's a lot to take in. It's clear now that these entities are not some sort of indescribable aliens or things from another reality, but are in fact humans. This group of humans from this faraway planet came to the realization that a perfect system can be created, but only through suffering. Specifically, the suffering of some on behalf of others. Not even these super-advanced humans are sure why that is, but they've accepted it. This explains all their talk of parents having to suffer to provide a greater life to their children. They came before us, so they're not actually our children in any biological sense, but they treat us as parents because we suffer so that they can have their utopia. Their utopian planet is surrounded by nine moons, each one home to an entire population of humans that are there specifically to suffer. The one we came from, apparently the planet of hands, is now vacant, because we somehow managed to flee to Earth. The entity says that we did so because some of us understood the more forbidden aspects of space and time. Why these are forbidden is unknown, but this is why they can't just come over and grab us, because they are forbidden to travel great distances so quickly. Instead, they've resorted to more subtle ways to convince us to come home. 
putting two and two together, it seems clear now that 052 was quite wrong about the precog anomalies that she visited. She said that there was no way that all of them could be faulty in showing an incorrect future. The problem is, of course, that they're dealing with a group that can alter anomalies in any way they wish, including showing us an optimistic future that we'll never actually get to experience. These people are determined to make us come home to the planet of hands, not so we can share in their utopia, but so we can suffer eternally for it. It seems that 052 came to realize that the best bet was indeed to commit mass suicide first. In the next document, 052 sends a message to 051, saying that seeing things on the public news before being briefed about them by staff is doing a number on them. They say that it's over now, 2 is dead and left a note behind, and there's no protocols for something like this. SCP-001 put on a performance to explain things to the world, as they tend to do, as we saw from the film earlier. The rest of the document takes the form of a script for a play titled The Man at the Threshold. The play begins at 9.43 a.m. in Egypt, as the Egyptian military mobilizes in response to a mass gathering in front of the Great Sphinx. At 9.47, a spontaneous, powerful sandstorm encircles the area within 100 kilometers of the Sphinx, and four humanoids, Semitic in appearance and clothed in white cloth and sandals, appear spontaneously at the scene. Soldiers present fire several rounds at the humanoids to no effect, and they begin speaking. The names of the four are listed as Proteus, Melita, Agus, and Monashir. Proteus begins by saying that he is scared, and Melita responds by saying that they're all scared, as this is the day that their cohort has been preparing for their entire lives. Proteus says that three of them will be chosen, and ponders if they've made enough of their time here, and if it will comfort them if they are cast outside. Agus says to look at the things they've done together, mapping an unknown star system, wrote a song that made them heroes of the summer convocation, scaled the shadow pass of the mountain of ice. He says that if he was cast out today, it was all worth it. Proteus simply responds that he hopes to be as brave as him when he enters the chamber. Monashir says that all accept what they are given in the threshold, and Melita and Agus both say, how could it be otherwise? At 10.17, the sandstorm briefly intensifies before subsiding, after which the humanoids have vanished, along with the Great Sphinx. In its place is a holographic projection in the appearance of the Sphinx, and numerous photographs and videos are taken of it. The second scene of the play begins at 11.43am in Cairo, Egypt, as darkness falls across the city. Nine moons are visible in the sky, and riots begin almost immediately as messages are broadcast over PA systems attached to several mosques, announcing that the end times have begun. Images of the four humanoids are projected onto the side of a government building in the city, and audio accompanies the images. An unknown figure listed only as The Man speaks first, asking if this set of four born 35 years ago, are ready to enter. 
They say that they are. So the man asks them if they can see how even those cast into exile may have a taste of their beautiful world, and how those who remain behind have shared the shadow of death with those that leave. They say that they do. So the man continues and says that this is the threshold, the place where human society is made. It's here that the perfect and sacred salvation of the few is earned by the fate of the many. It is they who will make the ultimate sacrifice and who deserve the love and honor of the few. He asks them if they choose to pass the threshold of their own volition, to which they all say that they do, although Proteus has been hesitant each time. Melita steps forward first, and is told that she will dwell on the planet of eyes, to which she hesitantly accepts her duty. Agus will be taken to the planet of skin, and although he accepts, he looks close to fainting. Monashir is told that she will remain behind, and that she should remember the great love of her departed sisters and brothers. She says that she shall, and begins to weep. Finally, Proteus steps forward, trembling, and is told that he is to come to the planet of Hands. At this point, Daylight returns to the city square where 10,000 people have gathered to view this. Several thousand of these people immediately lose their vision, and several hundred others appear to be instantaneously flayed alive through unknown means. All other people present no longer possess hands, instead having completely healed stumps. The Foundation attempts to stop coverage of the event, but news footage immediately leaks. O512 says that every nation on Earth has put their militaries on high alert, and a few conflicts have already broken out. Churches, mosques, and synagogues are overflowing, with religious individuals convinced that judgment is at hand, while everyone else just assumes that the world is about to come to an end. Murder-suicides are starting to occur, but not as many as the Foundation thought, since SCP-001 has made it clear that people have options. The second act of the play begins in China, as reports emerge of the embalmed corpse of Mao Zedong emerging from its mausoleum. A projection of the Proteus individual appears alongside it, with Mao now functioning as the man as the dialogue continues. The man tells Proteus that there's no point in lingering, since they all have their appointed places. Proteus argues that there's no sense in it, since their utopian world is immense, and surely there's no need for anyone to live in exile. The man simply responds that problems of the far future become the problems of tomorrow for a race that doesn't die. Proteus continues to argue, saying that there's no need for anyone to give birth if the only purpose of creation of life is for it to suffer. The man says that he has had this duty for a very long time, and these are not new questions, nor are his answers new. If the act of creation is taken away from humans, their minds turn dark and destructive. Proteus asks about the suffering and cruelty for those that live on the Nine Wounds, to which the man says that there is suffering there, as it must be so, and they must know of it, since human enterprise needs vast inputs of suffering. The suffering binds them together, 
as the knowledge that there are others that cannot have what they have affects them. It was this discovery that paved the way to something called Heaven's Gate. He goes on to say that there is no cruelty on those moons, as they do not do these things because they wish to cause pain. They do these things to give beauty and truth without end to those that are chosen. He says that if even one person may taste of the infinite good, is it not worth any amount of finite suffering? But Proteus simply asks why he must pay the price. Upon conclusion of this dialogue, crowds in the square became highly agitated, tearing apart the corpse of Mao and resisting the riot police present. World leaders began issuing statements urging for people to remain calm as scientists struggle to explain the anomalous demonstrations. The death toll from civil unrest is already in the thousands. Ten minutes later, a dam in the Hubei province of China spontaneously disappears, although the water held behind it does not move. Minutes later, projections of Proteus and the man appear on the surface of the wall of water. Proteus asks what this place is, to which the man responds that they are on the planet of hands. Proteus says that it looks like it has been on fire, covered in ruins and rubble. The man says that there was a time when they simply exiled people here, who proceeded to build their own societies in a fashion, driven by what they could not have in jealousy of those that lived in the utopia. This resulted in the exiles building vast ships and terrible weapons which they used against the utopian humans. The utopian humans won, of course, but now they ensure that this will never happen again by taking away the exiles' hands. After this, the still water is released, causing massive flooding and widespread destruction along the area of the river's banks. China becomes more unstable due to this, and the government is overthrown within a matter of hours. 0512 says that everything they've worked for is being crushed in hours, and the only thing that's keeping things from being even worse is the idea of going home, wherever home happens to be. Act 3. All notable buildings in the National Mall area of Washington, D.C. change color from white to red. The Washington Monument emits a bright column of red light, stretching up into the sky and visible from hundreds of miles away. Holographic projections spontaneously appear directly above the monument's reflecting pool. Proteus says they have traveled many miles, to which the man says that the planet of hands is vast, but they meet another person, a handless woman. She says that she must be close to the blessed end and she no longer has a name, because they have no need for such things here. Proteus asks her if she remembers her home, but she just says that this is her home. He tries again, asking if she remembers the place she came from before this. The woman says that she remembers a time when she wasn't starving, but it was a long time ago, and it's difficult to recall. Proteus points out that he can see her ribs, and asks if she'd like him to find some food. The woman says that there is no food here. It's a place of ash and salt, but hunger is a blessing because it clears her mind. God speaks to her here and tells her to lift her stumps to the blue light in the sky. 
she prays, and it fills her with the knowledge that she is here for a purpose, which makes her happy. She says that the last gift of the body before it evaporates is the divine revelation, as she now lives without fear and doubt, dwelling in the spirit that made this place, a place of ecstasy. The woman then collapses, and the man says that her time here is now at an end, with no torments of false hope and no food or water to sustain her suffering longer than it must. Proteus asks the man how long she was here, to which he responds that she was only here for two weeks. Proteus remarks that she did not seem to be suffering, to which the man says that the joy of martyrdom obliterates all suffering. This is a secret known only to those on the Nine Moons, a gift to those who make this sacrifice, as she is now truly transcended. Proteus says that he is ready. 50,000 people had gathered around the Washington Monument to witness this, with law enforcement personnel busy to contain scenes of civil unrest. A large doorway appears in the center of the Washington Monument, with only a faint green light visible. The projections continue speaking. The man appears holding a ceremonial blade and a torch, telling Proteus to present his hands and referring to him as Father of Humanity. Proteus holds out his hands and states that he stands ready. The man begins sawing at his left wrist as he asks if he accepts the gift of sacrifice for those brethren that shall remain in the light for all of time. Proteus says that he does, so the man asks if he offers his suffering for the good of the whole and the benefit of the collective psyche of humanity as he snaps off Proteus's left hand and cauterizes the wound with his torch. He asks if he renounces the unstable reality of the universe outside of their system and commits to the preservation of sanity within their system. Proteus says that he does, and then screams. The man says that with the left hand, Proteus accepts his duty, and with the right, their duty to him, and proceeds to slice it cleanly off in one motion. Proteus thanks the man as he continues, saying that the living shall keep a society of perfect harmony, justice, and beauty, transforming their suffering into the most divine purpose imaginable. He cauterizes the right stump, as Proteus says that he's honored beyond measure, and screams again. The man finishes by saying that in this holy pact, they shall know love without measure or end, and tells him to complete his journey, to which Proteus says that he accepts his duty. The projection depicting Proteus proceeds to enter the doorway in the Washington Monument, and the doorway begins to slowly close. Several spectators nearby rush into the doorway, followed by increasing numbers of onlookers. In the end, an estimated 3,000 bystanders entered before the door closed, with none of them having been seen since. 0512 says that 13 asked them if what they worked to preserve was ever natural. 12 thought this to be a stupid question, as it doesn't matter. What they created and preserved here was better than what waits for them. People have managed to cause more of these doorways to appear across the world, and they're fleeing into them. The Foundation has no control over the world, with anomalies freely roaming the planet and humanity fully aware of it. 
12 says it's hard to blame them for going through the doors, as it's better to be a refugee than a corpse, or worse. As for 12, though, they will not be going through the door and ending their life as cattle. They tell 051 that it was a pleasure to serve. If the play is to be believed, most of the people exiled from the Utopia to suffer and die within a couple weeks are perfectly willing to do so, for the good of the few. Even those with doubts will change their minds eventually. The Planet of Hands is named such due to its population having their hands removed upon arrival, in order to prevent them from building up a civilization of their own and challenging the Utopia again. Presumably, the other moons, the planets of eyes and skin, have similar measures in place. One has to wonder how many people they're exiling on a regular basis, as it seems that they have no interest in prolonged suffering, but rather short and powerful suffering. There's one final document, titled Jackie and Aurelio. This one is structured more akin to a traditional tale. The story seems to take place in an abandoned city in Argentina, and is narrated initially by Jackie. She complains about how fast Aurelio drives on his motorcycle, who doesn't care if he lives or dies. He's been spending a lot of time with new members of an MTF known as the Barqueros, and they've been bringing trucks, equipment, and tools into the tower, SCP-2303. 2303 is an abandoned high-rise building that operates as a focal point for concepts and ideas that are not fully realized and never implemented by their originators. These unfinished concepts, including things such as proposed artworks, political systems, and scientific theorems, are then communicated to observers in the vicinity of the tower. These concepts can be observed through radios or televisions, or for more complicated things, through auto-hypnosis, meditation techniques, and activities similar to automatic writing. The MTF in charge of the tower, the Barqueros, are there to make sure that none of these ideas are ever realized, as the tower isn't home to just any unfinished ideas, but specifically ideas that are much better off not being carried out. Notably, on the top floor seems to be the script for the man at the threshold, which apparently caused a lot of MTF deaths when it was discovered. This seems to indicate that the tower doesn't only trap ideas from Earth, but even ideas from as far out as the Utopia. Aurelio slides to a stop in front of a market, to the amusement of the two elderly individuals, Maximo and Ernesto, sitting there. He goes inside to buy a six-pack of beer and steps back outside, throwing one each to Maximo and Ernesto. Jackie says that they start drinking without any questions, and remarks that you question everything when you're dead. Jackie says that Aurelio really shouldn't have gone poking around in that tower, and comments on the current state of the world. Aurelio gets back on his motorcycle and heads toward the tower. She wonders what will happen when the rest of us pass to the other side of the river, when no one is left, and every one of us is alone forever. Aurelio stops his bike in front of his house and enters, drinking his third bottle of beer. The windows are all boarded up, leaving it pitch black inside, with him not able to even see his hands. He speaks aloud, 
saying that this is just really bad procrastination, and he knows that Jacinta is not there. He says that you're supposed to conclude your affairs when you do stuff like this, so he continues. He sent off the new members of the MTF, telling them to end it in whatever way they saw fit. The older ones knew what Aurelio was planning, though, and Jackie remarks that one of them would have done it if he hadn't thought of it first. Aurelio says that he has to do this, and he's scared, not of death, but of the top floor and what it's going to try to convince him to do. Jackie says that she wishes he could hear her, that she wasn't behind eternities of space and time and void. Aurelio continues to speak to his memory of Jackie and apologizes, saying that he's sorry she wasn't here to see the end of the spiral, and that he made it out and not her. It seems that whatever happened on the top floor of the tower with the man at the threshold left Jackie as an incorporeal entity, although Aurelio and a handful of others made it out. Aurelio leaves the building and begins walking towards the tower. Upon arrival, he unlocks the chains to the main entrance and steps inside, followed by Jackie. She says that you don't need any technology to hear the unfinished ideas when you're like she is, though they aren't actually speaking to her, as they want to be completed, and she can't complete anything. Aurelio steps into the elevator and proceeds to the top floor. Jackie remarks that this place is a monument to the first man, who saw the leaping flames of the bonfire and wondered what it must be like to throw himself in. They arrive at the top, and Jackie expects to see the man they did last time, who told them of their inferiority and of the greatness of his apex predator world. Instead, they see a woman wearing flowing purple robes with alabaster skin, who is looking back at Aurelio. Jackie says that the woman has a gaze like a refrigerated hospital basement, with hateful sterility and frigid contempt. Aurelio realizes that this woman was from the play, Monashir, who had the title of Lady of the Tower. Aurelio blinks and the woman is suddenly ten meters closer to them, with Jackie given the impression that they are not important enough for her to dignify by changing her impassive expression. Aurelio taunts her, saying that she was a minor character in the play. Maybe she's not saying anything now because she's forgotten her lines. Jackie can tell, however, that he's afraid, and he blinks again, with the woman now standing right behind him. She half expects the woman to kill him, but she's instead looking over his shoulder at a scene. The scene in front of them is of the MTF from when they first came to the top floor, with Jackie herself arguing that they need to leave, and a younger Aurelio arguing that this is the culmination of their exploration. The current Jackie says that she remembers this, as they let themselves be seduced by the tower, and they gain nothing from knowing what's here. The scene changes from what actually happened, as the MTF stops speaking and simply stand there waiting. The woman half whispers and tells Aurelio to choose. She asks him, knowing all that he does now, what does he choose? And Jackie sees that she is smiling now. He has to choose between keeping things as they were, meaning that his team went to the top floor, which resulted in most of their deaths, including Jackie's, or undoing it, erasing everything that happened since, but letting his team live longer. 
Jackie recalls back to when they went to the top floor, where they experienced incredible visions showing a society of indescribable beauty, the inescapable damnation of the planet of hands, and the nightmare love with which they regarded us. Jackie was called forward first as a reward for finding them, and was told to come back home by a spectral man. Jackie says that it seemed to be the only option when faced with such magnificent beauty. Through tears of ecstasy and joy, she grabbed her knife and slit her own throat. She died as Aurelio tried to save her, and she watched as a number of the others wept and cut off their hands. In the present, Aurelio turns away from the scene and faces the woman, telling her that she should have tried this in America or some other place where they think they have this figured out. The woman says that not making the choice doesn't make it cease to exist, and they accounted for this. Aurelio reaches into his pocket to grab something, but his hand then slowly moves out of his pocket involuntarily. Moments later, a detonator floats out of his pocket towards the woman, who takes it into her hand and crushes it. She sneers at Aurelio and asks who is more god, the vacant cow who squeezes out more life into its putrid field, or the overseer who tends to the survival of that cow. She says that surely Aurelio is not so stupid to think that they wouldn't notice the MTF attaching the explosives to the tower. She says that his actions have been meaningless and petty. Her attitude is in sharp contrast to what the utopian humans want us to believe they're like. Rather than filled with love and honor for those that suffer for them, she is smug and thinks of us as cattle, which is likely how they all feel. She raises her hand and Aurelio rises into the air, although he has a calm look on his face. Through a great deal of effort, he speaks and says that they went through a lot of effort to thwart a meaningless gesture, asking her what it means that she is in the tower with them. He continues, asking if the utopian humans were surprised to find something of their civilization here, meaning the man at the threshold, and asks why they would hide and protect it, specifically why would she be here to protect it. This angers Monashir, who telekinetically slams him into the floor, but Aurelio just laughs. He says that she's been right here with us, trying to figure out why she's been stuck in this tower, scratching and clawing at her coffin lid. This tower is important to the utopian humans for whatever reason, and this woman, Monashir, who in the play was told to remain, found herself inside of it for reasons she doesn't understand. She throws Aurelio across the room in a rage, leaving him near dead, but still alive to taunt her. He says that she thinks that saving this tower from his explosives will solve the one problem she can't figure out, but in reality, she belongs here with us, and she'll never know why. She thought that she would join the Utopian society, but instead she's been exiled here to this tower, and she'll never understand why. With his final words, Aurelio says that the Utopian humans forsake death, but death's wisdom is lost to them. They push madness away, but that leaves them defenseless. They've blinded themselves, but they'll die anyways. The woman then strikes Aurelio with her fists, killing him. In the ruins of his shirt, however, there is a glint of exposed metal showing from a freshly sutured wound. 
This is a dead man's switch, a detonator connected to his heart, designed to trigger if it stops beating. The tower explodes in a massive burst of fire, killing the woman and harming the utopian humans in an unknown way. Jackie joins with Aurelio as they hover in the sky over a world giving way to whatever the next may be. That's it. An explosive ending, quite literally, but one lacking an ultimate conclusion. In some ways, SCP-001 are the victors, successfully persuading or forcing much of the population of Earth to return to the planet of hands to suffer and die for their utopia. In other ways, though, as Aurelio pointed out, SCP-001 are doomed. Despite all of their advancements and talk of perfect understanding, they've blinded themselves to what it means to be human, and the importance of things such as fear, uncertainty, and death. Their civilization is ultimately untenable due to the simple fact that they are not super advanced aliens, but are still humans. Unfortunately, that really means this isn't much of a victory for anyone aside from a number of anomalies that are now free to do as they please. It's a rather bleak ending for a lengthy SCP-001 proposal, but the killing of Monashir does send a message to the utopian humans that humans can never be completely controlled, and madness and death are a core part of our existence. In the end, you're not a group of transcended aliens. You're just a bunch of evil humans. <laughs>